Hello, everyone, and welcome to Indie Radio broadcast number 60. Indie Radio is an indie game development talk show, which is here to bring you interviews with both large and lesser-known developers, recap the latest news, debate about topics in indie gaming, and give you some tips and tricks for your journey into game development. Today is April 25th, 2015, and I'll be your host, Brett Hudson, broadcasting live from the Midwest, United States. And with us today, we have... This is your cue! Oh, Paige Ashland. Sorry, I thought you were going to introduce me. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> My name is Paige. Uh, those of you who have heard of me probably know me from working on the game Magnetic by Nature. Uh, I'm a, a programmer and all-around indie developer. I really like games. Perfect. So our show, as always, is split into a couple different segments. Uh, we have the news, and then we have the interview, and then we have the credits. And we have the IRC available on the astronet.org network. If anybody wants to jump in there and ask uh, either me or Paige questions about games or stuff in the interview, or you have news topics that you want us to cover, what, whatever you want to talk about, jump in the IRC and we will get back to you. It is the channel Indie Function, I-N-D-I-E Function, and the IRC channel is also embedded on the IndieFunction.com slash radio page, so if you're listening from the page on our site, the IRC chat should be right underneath, and you can just put in the username, log in, and join us on the show. Uh, so with that being said, let's get into the news. So the first thing that we have uh, going on right now in the indie scene is Game Loading came out. Uh, game Loading, Rise of the Indies, is an indie documentary about the indie game scene. Um, it's different from Indie Game the Movie, where Indie Game the Movie was more about uh, the development process and the struggles that uh, the four developers in the movie experienced on their journey. And this one was more about the scene, um, the events that happened in the indie community, uh, and just the overall... Uh, tones and themes that uh, make the indie gaming scene what it is, which is uh, pretty cool. <clears throat> um, and then, uh, Paige, you said that you had seen about a third of the movie? Yeah, so I got together with some of my friends yesterday to watch it, and uh, we ran into some technical glitches, so we weren't able to finish it, but uh, we did watch like the first third of it. Um, uh, it's very cool. Like, I kind of like the approach that it takes better than Indie Game the Movie, which I think a lot of people have said. Like, And it's not to disparage Indie Game the Movie, but I feel like this just gives you a much more fuller and uh, rounded picture of what indie games are like and what the development is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely much more like what, what it's like being an indie developer rather than being just a game developer. Right, and also I felt like it was kind of more like what it's like being an indie game developer rather than being this particular indie game developer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, I mean, like, I have heard some people say that, like, they, they wished that uh, it was even broader in its focus because, there, like, you could say there is kind of a tendency to look at a, a certain area of independent games, Um and I can see that criticism, but I guess I just feel like that's sort of, you know, you, you can't put everything into uh, a, a movie, you know, mm -hmm. like, it's not like a miniseries. Yeah, it's not. So that leaves, it leaves space for other people to make later documentaries and mm -hmm. talk about more areas. 
somewhat you were just saying about a series. That could be really interesting. To, uh, that would be awesome. Because they, they did do yeah, uh, Super Game Jam, time. which was which was super fun to watch. But something more along the lines of, like, an hour episode with, like, the production of an entire game or, like, a segment of the games industry, like the the Philly game scene or San Francisco yes. or Brazil or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Someone make that. Someone do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it because I will uh, support you on Kickstarter or Patreon if you do. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Uh, so game loading does still have. Oh, that was that was weird. My tweet deck showed up and uh, there's a GIF on there and I thought there was a fly on my screen and then it just disappears. <laughs> it totally screwed with me. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the next piece of news is, uh, Yo-Yo Games just started a, an emailing, uh, mail list, or emailing mailing list? There we go. And, uh, it's, it's a newsletter, it's gonna be monthly, and I would link it in the, in the show topics, but it is an email, so I can't really link it. Uh, but they've got some cool news going, uh, coming on. Uh, they have Maddening Overload, which is going to be released on PlayStation 4 in Europe. <clears throat> who I believe is made by uh, now, yeah, Andrew McCluskey. Yeah, he uh, he ported and expanded the game, and he's releasing it on PlayStation Four, so that's pretty cool. They're also releasing Simply Solitaire uh, Beta uh, on iPhone and iPad. So if you want to get into the beta, uh, you can do that at yoyogames.com/solitaire-beta. And then there's some new updates in Game Maker Studio. Um, including YoYo accounts, which is a one-step solution to all Game Maker licensing issues. So with this account, it ties your Game Maker license to it, so you're able to um, log into both the Game Maker Market, uh, Game Maker Marketplace, uh, the Game Maker Player, their new kind of Steam client for Game Maker games, and also Game Maker Studio, uh, using this one account, so you don't have to dig through your emails and try to find the licenses and all that fun stuff. Uh, so, it's an early access, so I'm guessing you can access it in the new Game Maker Studio, but it's probably going to be a bit buggy. So, if you want to try that out, go for it. Um, and then, there is some other stuff going on with Game Maker Marketplace. There's uh, a thousand live assets, 40,000 registered users. Um, and then they talk about the community, about uh, Ludum Dare, there's a GMC jam going on right now, and uh, Yo-Yo Games is also going to be attending Microsoft's Build Conference at the end of the month. So, oh, cool. tons and tons and tons of Yo-Yo Games Game Maker news, uh, which is always exciting, um, especially since they were just acquired by Playtech, and now they're putting out all these really cool um, news updates. So I'm glad that Things aren't going south like a lot of uh, game makers users thought they were going to. All right, and then we have another tool that put out some news, and that is Unity. Uh, there's also early access for them to new 2D tools, and I didn't read up on this uh, too much, but you can opt into an early access beta. Or no, it's Alpha, I'm sorry. Um, if you're a Unity Pro user, to try out all their new 2D tools, which will make making 2D games way easier, because that's what tools do. Uh, so yeah, um, this is one of the one of the things that they decided to change with the new licensing plans, is that Unity Pro 
users get access to features sooner than the uh, non-paid users do. Um, and I guess this is the first one that they're rolling out. It might be the second. I might have missed one, but yeah. I think this. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, it's fine. I was done. <laughs> I think that's a really smart way to do it. Like, I really, in general, I really like their new licensing structure, and in this part in particular, I think, like, that's really to me that seems very fair that the people who pay, uh, you know, get. It's kind of like supporting someone on a Patreon, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you get earlier access um, and maybe access to to things that are are still unfinished, but um, that eventually those of us who aren't paying top dollar also get access to. Um, I'm also, in general, I'm really excited about all the 2D stuff that's going on mm-hmm. uh, with Unity. Um, I did read a little bit about this on the forum, and I sort of tuned out pretty quick because it sounded like most of it... Uh, was focused on on stuff that would be relevant for people doing like uh, side-scrolling platformers, um, and I really am hoping that they'll start putting more effort into top-down games or, uh, you know, I don't know something, just other areas of two D mm-hmm. basically. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's exciting, and and I really am happy to see uh, more and more emphasis in Unity going towards two D stuff. Yeah, I think the reason why that they're uh, why they're so focused on doing side scrollers and platformers is because they do have physics engine in Unity, yes. and they really want to use that rather than you know do top down. But it, it, it's, top down games it's smart. Yeah, I agree with them. Like, and uh, it's not to disparage like uh, that kind of game. Either. Mm-hmm. It's just not what I'm working on at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think I think in general they've made very wise choices and leveraging their existing tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the screenshot that they have, um, there's there's an image of a terrain, and there's little squares with lines between them, and it kind of looks like a collider box around this very not-geometric-shaped uh, terrain, which which is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to try that out. So hopefully it won't be too long before it comes to the free edition, so I can I can get that. Because I don't have $1,500 to put up. Right. Then the the next news uh, topic was one that I didn't think that I would bring up, but it was actually kind of interesting. The U.S. government is giving grant money uh, for educational games, and I looked into it some more, and it sounds really really cool. Um, Anybody can apply, uh, from what I understand, uh, as long as they have a small business. Uh, You might be able to register as an individual, but they might have some rules or whatever. And the Institute of Educational Sciences uh, is going to provide up to $1,050,000 in funding to small business firms and partners for the research and development of commercially viable educational technology products. That is super exciting. That is not chump change. That's a lot of money. No. <laughs> that is really cool. I I think it might be one million across all of them. Like that might be their oh, okay. their grant amount, but that also might be per person, although that well not per person per team. Um, although that, that seems a bit ridiculous maybe. Like but not really. But well, it might depend. I mean, and I'm sure, like, it would depend on the project anyway. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure they'd look at you and, and be like, well, how much money is does this project need? How much do we feel like it's worth? Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think that that's nice because there's, like, a lot of times 
like I, there's been a number of grants at the state level that I've looked at, and usually those like max out around like ten to fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and it's like even for a very modest game, that that money is going to go by real fast. Yeah. So it's nice to see somebody doing this where they have more money at their disposal to work with. Mm-hmm. And there's two different tracks that you can uh, take. You can take the education track which is uh, about students learning directly or indirect- indirectly um, in an authentic educational de- delivery setting. So it would be for schools, uh, after-school programs, uh, you know, like online schooling, all that stuff. And then there's also a special education track that you can take, which uh, they treat slightly differently. So you can create educational uh, materials for uh, disabled students and all that stuff, which is really cool. Um, and that, that's just made me think like, um, because I, I have a disabled friend who doesn't have very many motor skills and he, he can't play video games and he always thought it'd be really cool if somebody were to develop something that, uh, he could really easily access. Um, and like when, when I read this, I was like, oh, this is exactly what he's talking about. You know, educational materials that, uh, you can just put on an Oculus Rift and like, tilt your head side to side, and that does stuff, too. Oh, totally. Like, oh, tilt your head left for A, tilt your head right for B, and, you know, all that that stuff. That's really cool. So, hopefully this this goes really well. If anybody out there is working on anything, or planning on uh, entering into this grant, uh, hit me up. Like, send me an email. Uh, It's bred at indiefunction.com. Uh, or tweet us and let us know, because I'm very, very interested in hearing more about this. Yeah, I also just think it's really refreshing to see the U.S. government offering any kind of game-related grant. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I know a lot of European countries do that, and I always feel a little bit jealous. <laughs> um, I'm not doing anything educational myself right now, but it's cool to know that other people will be getting access to funds in this way. All right, so we're 15 minutes into our interview. We have an IRC channel. If you're just listening in and you didn't catch that earlier, it's on the astronet.org network. Uh, the channel is Indie Function, I-N-D-I-E Function. If you're listening into our show live from the radio page on IndieFunction.com, the IRC channel is right on the page. Enter your username and jump in. You can ask us questions, uh, link us topics that have happened in the last couple of weeks that are interesting and all that. And speaking of interesting topics, uh, Paige brought one up before the show, and it yes. was it was uh, talking about paying bills and stuff. Do you want to give us a little recap on that? Yeah, sure. So um, there's this is like almost like a thread of uh, blog posts that different people uh, have done. It was started by uh, developer Dan Cook, who wrote uh, what I think is a very informative piece on um, making a living. Uh, doing independent game development and what sorts of things you need to keep in mind if you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. It's titled uh, Minimum Sustainable Success. And um, there's, I think it's really well worth reading because he covers a lot of ground. But in particular, there's one thing that he says in here where he's kind of like uh, speculating that there's probably a lot of prominent artists in the indie community who are able to be prominent artists because they have a partner of some kind, like either a spouse or, you know, someone in their life who is paying a good portion of their bills. 
and uh, several uh, several other independent developers who are in that position or have been in that position in the past have written responses to this article um, detailing their experiences there. And in particular, uh, Emily Short wrote a, a really good response called uh, The Embarrassed Silence Thread. And um, it also, like, as well, I mean, I think all of these are well worth reading, but I'm picking these two out in particular because they both cover a lot of ground. Like, there's a lot of different issues that she brings up. Um, uh, but they're talking about, like, in general, kind of, like, practical, like, if you want to make a living, this is what you need to do. And then sort of, like, on a philosophical level, uh, like, Dan Cook is, is very, like, um, sort of, like, um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that this is the right way to approach uh, independent development for most people. And uh, there was another um, independent developer whose name I, I may mispronounce, uh, Sasa Stublik, who wrote a, um, another blog piece that was featured on Gama Sutra called Don't Monetize Your Games, which is taking kind of the exact opposite uh, tack on, on this topic, sort of saying... Um, uh, here are the reasons why doing games and not selling them, and not only not selling them, but not even thinking about selling them might be the right choice for a lot of people. And I think uh, all of these people have really good points, and uh, it's a really interesting conversation. That um, uh, it, For me, it was the most exciting thing happening in, in this scene over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's as far as I'll go with that, because there's so many different things said in there, I, I sort of don't even know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, if anybody wants to read those, I did put them in the IRC chat, and we will also be putting them up on the show topics on the radio page, so if you want to read those, uh, we'll have them linked, you can check them out. Uh, yeah, there, there sounds like there is a lot, a lot, a lot of information in it, because you said that it's been going on for a couple of weeks, so... Maybe not quite two weeks. I, I think mm -hmm. the first one maybe is like 11 or 12 days ago. But yeah, there, there's been a lot of back and forth between people. And it's totally relevant, too, because um, there's a lot of indies that are interested in making money off their games so they can do it as their primary right. job. So it's, it's yeah. super interesting. I guess maybe just to throw my two cents out there, like, uh, the way I kind of look at indie development um, for myself, uh, just speaking for myself, is uh, I would like to see indie games become more similar to indie music. Like, in particular, uh, I've lived in a lot of different cities in the United States, and uh, I've it's always interesting to me to see, like, sort of the flavor of the local music scene or music scenes Mm -hmm. uh, in different cities. And one thing that I'm a little envious of is like, um, there's this usually tightly knit hardcore audience of people that, uh, some of whom aren't even musicians, but they'll go to every single show that local bands will put on. And, you know, they'll, they're there both to financially and emotionally support the local artists because what the local artists are doing is valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I really would like to see that sort of attitude grow up around independent games. And I think there's some cities like uh, Philadelphia 
and yeah. uh, San Francisco where you're seeing that a little bit, but it's like, like you can even go to like, you know, very small, almost not a blip on the map towns and there's music scenes like that there. And, yeah. uh, we're not at that space with indie games yet. Mm-mm. Um, but I think part and parcel of this is that most of those musicians playing in those bands recognize that this will never be their full-time job. Um, and for me personally, like I'm comfortable with that. Like I'm, I'm okay working a day job in order to support myself so that I can do the art that I want to do. Um, it's kind of crappy that it has to be that way, but that's our society. That's capitalism, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and along those lines, maybe I'll mention one other article. Um, Cody Dyfenthaler, this was a little while back, but he wrote uh, an interesting blog piece, um, which I'll, I'll send you in the chat. Um, about basically exactly this idea, um, treating games more like um, music, and in particular how his team took their game, Temple of Yog, on a tour throughout uh, the U.S. and Canada, the way uh, bands tour. And I think that's really exciting. I want to do that in the future. Sweet. Uh, there was a small portion of game loading. They actually went to this place twice. There's this... Uh... Uh, building, I guess I'll call it, um, called Game City in uh, Nottingham, UK. And mm. uh, I also have a friend that I met recently over the internet from Nottingham that talks about it all the time. And then I saw it in game loading. I was like, "Whoa, this is this is actually a big thing." Like I thought this was just some small little thing, um, but it's it's kind of like that. They it's it's a. Uh, Kind of like an interactive museum of games where you can go in and they have people come in all the time that just sit down and play games. And some are multiplayer, some are single player. And they have a lot of people that don't even play games that come in there. And like, were you, you talking about the, um, the, like, the whole transition of kind of indie games becoming like the, the indie music scene, um, made me think of that because it's, it's kind of exactly that, um, where, uh, Nottingham created this, uh, or at least some people in Nottingham created this little area that people can go to to experience the game scene and kind of find out about it. So if there's stuff like that popping up all over the place, then we could very well see something like like what you're proposing here happen. Yeah, I think it will happen. I don't know how quickly it's going to happen, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Like, I, I want to see like more... Like, there's part of me where I would be so excited if there comes a day where, like, I play a game and I'm like, oh, this game was totally made in Chicago. Or, like, <laughs> oh, this, this game totally looks like southern France, you know? Like, I, I want there to be, like, that local color. Um, I don't know, maybe, like, the, the interconnectedness and the, the smallness of the community and us all knowing each other online will work against that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I want to, I don't know, that hmm. just sounds fun to me. Yeah, that sounds so interesting, but, like, to me, I I can't see that happening quite like that, because games are, like, all the ideas in games can be so just ridiculous and out there that, like, I don't know if every, every game has a different flavor to it, so... Yes. Hmm. I don't know, yeah, it, no, it would I mean, be really like cool I said, to see. It, it might be that that never happens, you mm-hmm. know, because, like... I mean, I guess, like, uh, when you look at music, like, um, 
you know, like there's certain movements that are associated with certain geographical areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there, there's like a sound, at least for a brief period of time, is typical of that area. Um, but uh, even like the indie music scene, there's just so many more people in it, like astronomically more people in it, both as consumers and as producers, I think, than in the indie game scene. So it's kind of like we're automatically more homogenous. And then also, as you said, like, uh, games themselves, like, there's so much going on in them that, like, it's much more difficult to, like, take a game and boil it down to the, you know, like, let's say I have a game and it has, like, a, I don't know, like, a, like a Riot Girl soundtrack or it has a goth <laughs> soundtrack or something. It's like, that's still not the only defining feature of that game. So it would be much more difficult, um... But but I can fantasize. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly can. Uh, no, that that was a really fun uh, topic. Uh, thanks thanks for bringing it up. Um, yeah, uh, the IRC is open to anybody that wants to join in. We do have uh, Corrigan Stone in there. He's been chatting up quite a bit. Uh, so if you want to join the chat and bring up more topics and ask questions during the more interview part of the show, jump on in. Uh, IndieFunction.com slash radio. IRC is at the bottom of the page. And with that transition, we're going to get into the interview. So we're going to talk about your games. <gasps> so you work with a team called Team Triple Slash, correct? That's correct, yeah. All right. And you guys made a game called Magnetic by Nature, which was at IndieCade last year, which is how we ran into each other. Yes, that is also correct, yeah. Uh, so, um, do you want me to just give you, like, the whole Magnetic by Nature spiel, or...? Do it. You're gonna, you're gonna give it way better than I would. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Triple Slash, most of us met as undergrad students, uh, at the University of Utah. Mm -hmm. And, um, we did a, a previous game as, like, our capstone project, and we enjoyed working together so much that we were like, well, let's stick together and see if we can make a viable company out of this. And so we ran a Kickstarter uh, basically to make uh, a bigger and better and more polished version of the game um, that we made um, as students. Um, sorry, I was looking at the IRC and I totally lost train of my thought. <laughs> Students uh, so, at, yeah, we had yeah. A, a small but successful Kickstarter, and um, we entered the game into uh, IndieCade the year before uh, we showed there, and uh, through that, we were introduced to some people at Ouya, and Ouya approached us and said, hey, we'd love to, to give you some financing if you also release on Ouya. Um, and we were like, well, heck yeah, because we'd actually already been thinking about releasing on Ouya, so it was like, this was perfect for us. Um, uh, so that whole process took a, of working on Magnetic by Nature took about a year and a half, um, and it is out now. Uh, we were greenlit on Steam. Uh, it was released on Ouya and then on PC, Mac, and Linux. Um, we'd like to bring it to some of the larger consoles. That's a little bit up in the air still. Um, the game is a 2D physics-based puzzle platformer where you use magnets to avoid smashing into spikes and other forms of death. And uh, it's, it's got a really unique art style, and I like to think a good soundtrack. And there's some additional level packs coming down 
the the pipe in hopefully the near future. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It was my first uh, commercial game. So it was a very, very intense learning process and a, a lot of fun. And sometimes a lot of heartache, too. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't all games, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel, though, like when you're... It's sort of like when you're trying to actually sell it as a product that just amplifies all of that. Like, if I'm doing something just to amuse myself, then, like, if it's, like, you know, two in the morning and I'm, like, ready to go to bed, then I can just be like, well, I'm just going to bed. But if you're, like, you know, there's 400 Kickstarter backers that are, like, you said this thing was going to be ready last month, then you're, like, okay, <laughs> I'll keep working a while longer, guys. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, let's let's talk about that, because I've heard it happen quite, quite a few times, um in Kickstarter's history that people have set deadlines and that they've either barely met them or gone a bit over. What, what's the pressure like? Did, is it, what, what was your experience like with the whole pressure there? Right. So, um, I guess there's a couple of things there. Like one, I would say, and this is what I always say to people ask me about Kickstarter. Like while you're running your Kickstarter, that is so much more intense than you think it will be. Like, so many people told me this, so I thought I was prepared going into it, and it was still so much more work than I had imagined. Um, that 30 days, like, myself and uh, um, a- another guy on the team, uh, Kyle Chittenden, who is now working on a different game, 404 Sight, which is having a-, a lot of success on Steam at the moment, mm-hmm. um, the two of us during the Magnetic by Nature Kickstarter, like, we barely slept. Like, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> so that part of it is, is its own unique um, pressure. And then development is, like, a different kind of pressure because... Um, uh, and this is probably something that, as you go further into your career, it, it gets less, but I bet you it never quite goes away, which is just that what you think is going to take you six months may not actually take you six months. And... Uh, there's a like a lot of people who support Kickstarters, they're not thinking about it as like an investment in a project. They're thinking about it as a pre-order, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're like, I, I paid my money and in six months I'm gonna get this thing. And like if it's eight months and they still haven't got their thing, then they're understandably upset. Um and there's a lot of good ways to handle that. You know, you just you need to keep um you need to keep up with your community and you need to respond to people's requests and uh, the the trouble though is that all of that is more work. So if you're like already maxed out, um, then that's difficult to do. And we handled that better at certain points than at others. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's probably most of it. Like um, it's uh, it's uh, I think it's also getting more and more difficult to do a successful Kickstarter each year because each year there's more and more competition, mm-hmm. and I feel like the bar for what a successful Kickstarter looks like is constantly going up. Like, if you look at the really early Kickstarters uh, that were sort of a big deal in the video game section, like, their pages are so simplistic compared to, like, a Kickstarter nowadays, where it's like, you have to have an elaborate art design and a really well-written copy and music that people can download and a playable demo and, you know, all of this work before yeah. you even know if you're going to be kickstarted, um, and you know, three years ago that just wasn't the case. So, 
it's challenging. It's a, it's a challenging route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I have a contact that I know that actually helps people run Kickstarters, and every time I listen to him talk about like what you what you need to do to run a successful Kickstarter, it gets more and more intimidating because it, it is constantly changing, <laughs> and like he splurts up all these numbers like oh you need to have this much by day two and blah 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 and if if you have this much then you're gonna overfund by 150 and blah it is like holy crap, like, there's, not only is Kickstarter super difficult, but there's also, like, a secret kind of formula to it, that if you just get it yes. perfectly right, you are going to be successful, and if you don't hit that perfect formula, people will notice, and it's going to be way harder to get your funds. Yeah, we paid attention to that sort of thing a bit during our Kickstarter, like, um, probably not to the same level of detail as, as what you're describing, but like there's a characteristic curve that most Kickstarters follow. Mm-hmm. Like, and I forget all the details, but it's like by the second week, uh, you need to have raised about half of your funds or you're not going to uh, meet your goal. And that tends to be the case regardless of how many, uh, like regardless of whether you're running for 30 days or for 60. Like, um, uh, and there's a lot of other little things like that where there's sort of like indicators where you get there and you're like, everybody will be desperately watching, you know, like F5-ing just to see like, are we going to do it? Are we going to make it? Because um, there's always a few outliers. Like I, uh, you definitely do see people who buck the trends, but they're really unusual. Like yeah. most Kickstarters follow uh, the pattern uh, in lockstep. Mm-hmm. And... Another thing uh, with, like, your whole two-week point uh, that I know is super mm-hmm. crucial for Kickstarters is the beginning, the first day. You need to get a bunch of people back yes. which means you need to know know of people that are going to back it before day one yes. hits. Because uh, if, if you don't get the ball rolling, nobody's going to want to jump in. And we were fortunate in that regard. Like, uh, So we launched our prior game mm-hmm. on um, Xbox Live Indie, and it was kind of, in a way, it was bad because uh, we we were, like, in the very last window before Microsoft sort of threw up their hands and said, we don't care about this service anymore. <laughs> so we had one of the highest rated games on the service, but at a time when most people were, like, no longer interested in the service. Um, but the, the one area where that translated, like, we never made, you know, any money at all on there. <laughs> but... Um, it did translate into there were a bunch of people who were excited about our team and our game and were like they translated over into being excited about the Kickstarter. Like we got on uh, a couple of different podcasts and there were some uh, bloggers writing about us specifically because we had been on Xblig at that moment when it was sort of shutting down and there was this whole community that, that was like, well, where are we going to go next? So they were looking at some of the active game developers from that community and following them to wherever they went next. Um, so that that was provided a good amount of what you're describing of those people that had to be there ready to, you know, support us on day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you were able to take the Xbox Live indie mess and turn it into something something <laughs> good. I, I remember when that was shutting down and, like, a lot of people were really excited that, you know, Microsoft was moving on and a lot of people were really bummed because they had games up on the service. Yeah. So, 
Well, I think it was kind of like what uh, was it a couple of episodes ago where you were talking about uh, XNA going away. Yeah, and I think it's very similar. You know, it's like uh, it's it's sort of like well, this had to happen, but -hmm. at the same time, it's sad that it's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they finally pulled the final plug. Yeah, I have fond memories of working with XNA, and that's that's good enough for me. So, where where were we before we got on the tr- Kickstarter? I was page? talking about Magnetic by Nature, and mm-hmm. I kind of gave a little spiel for my team's history and what the game is. And I could talk about it more if you like. Um, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's go into kind of the experience of making the game. What what did you work on specifically on this project? So, in the beginning, I was just a coder. Um, I did a lot of uh, kind of like like scripting code, like stuff like the character has reached this point in the level and these things are true, so now this happens. Um, I also did some of the visual effects and then a lot of like just sort of boring behind-the-scenes gluing stuff together code. Um, but as the pro- project went on, I started taking on more and more like uh, business and marketing and legal and roles like that that basically just nobody else on the team wanted to do. Um, and I don't blame them because a lot of that stuff was like, like awful. <laughs> At least for somebody not trained in it, it was it was a um, it was an uphill battle learning to read contracts and things like that. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, by the end, like by the last six months of the sort of main development, like I almost wasn't touching the game anymore. I was just like doing interviews or talking to our distributors or you know arranging things with people who are going to maybe put the game in a bundle. Like, um, and uh, that was it. Was actually really really cool. I did not think that I was going to enjoy this, and there were parts of it that were very painful. But overall, like I really feel like I kind of grew into it, and I really like it now. Um, maybe with the exception of, I don't have, I feel like I really don't have the skills to do marketing well. So that's something that I, I really want to have on future games that I work on is somebody whose job is to do the marketing stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, other things about it, like, I mean, it, it it was such an amazing, like wonderful, horrible, (laughs) passion covered experience <laughs> like uh, uh, I guess one of the standout things for me is that kind of because we were working with Ouya um, we were able to go to lots of different events all around the country so we went to PAX Prime and we went to um, PAX East and we went to MAGFest and we went to GDC and we went to uh, IndieCade and uh, a bunch of smaller events and for me personally, those were such, it was such a wonderful experience. Like, um, because I have a background of volunteering, helping to put on, uh, events like that in other fandom communities. Um, so it was interesting, like going to like, well, I'm not the person who's trying to get vendors into my convention. Now I'm one of the vendors in the convention. Um, so that was very interesting to see. And it is also, and incredibly, like, physically just so exhausting to, to, to do a show like PAX. But it's, like, emotionally, it's so invigorating. Um, like, one of the things that uh, I think the whole team really just loved about that experience is that 
you know, you've been slaving away for months on this project and you kind of start to lose steam and you get to this point where you're like, why am I making this stupid game about magnets anyway? Like, I hate robots, you know? <laughs> and then you go to, like, PAX and you have, like, four solid days of like people just coming by and playing your game and like every single one of them likes it and they're smiling and they're excited about it and like that makes you feel so good you know um so that was kind of like a dominant element of the experience for me uh just getting to interact with gamers all over the country and uh hearing you know what other games they're excited about um Plus meeting all of these game developers, like, that was really cool, too. Like, there's sort of, you know, people that uh, I'd been following online for a long time who were, like, little luminaries in my world that then I would, like, meet them and be like, oh, you're a real person. We'd go have lunch <laughs> together. Like, that. that's always a lot of fun, too. Yeah, right? The, uh, when I went out to IndieCade, it was my first time ever going to an event, and I saw, like, every indie possible there and it's exactly that it's you're a real person <laughs> right <laughs> not an image on a computer i think indicate is kind of the best event for that particular thing because it's it's it is really strictly about the indies and so there's like so many people there and it's such a, like a high density of like you know, like you, you meet. Oh, this is the these are the people that run Gamer X, and it's like, oh, these are the people that developed Prom Night. You know, and all these little things that like were in my head but were disconnected. And it's like now they're all in the same room talking to each other. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, no, I think I think about half of our interviews uh, this season are a result of Indicated, just because you connect with so many people there, and mm -hmm. like it was amazing, just so many interesting people in the same place and i was like you're interesting you're interesting come on my show come on my show <laughs> you all need to you all need to spill your brains and i also had uh, really wonderful experiences talking to people from sony and nintendo there mm -hmm. um it was kind of like it was in a way it was almost the best of both worlds because i felt like you're enmeshed in this like space that's just like brimming with like indiness for lack of a better word but then, like, the the parts of AAA that are present are the parts that either, you know, personally or professionally are interested in the indie scene. So, um, uh, you know, it was just really cool getting to talk to all of these people from Sony where, like, they're super excited about independent games. Like, uh, that, that was... I was not expecting that, and that was really cool. Yeah, Sony had a huge booth there. Yes, yeah. I, I would always sneak off there when it would get really hot and just stand next to their fans. <laughs> <laughs> when I was, uh, so I was at PAX Prime uh, volunteering at the Indie Mega Booth one time and uh, just walking around in the concrete. Mm -hmm. My feet <laughs> got so <laughs> sore. But uh, whenever I got a moment, I would go like sneak over and stand next to Sega's booth because they had this really plush carpet. <laughs> so it was like the... A little break. <laughs> what was your favorite experience at IndieCade, if you don't mind me asking? Oh man, you can't ask me that. There are too many. Okay. <laughs> the, the weekend was just a continuous like high. It was like ah, everything is awesome. Um. Oh man, favorite favorite IndieCade moment. Yeah, I can't pick one. Did um, you go to Night Games? 
Yeah, yeah, that's we, we talked at night games uh, in front of the. Um... Oh, do, uh, see, I can't remember when I talked to who. Yeah. It was all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, I asked just because that was like that was probably my favorite. Like mm-hmm. all of the weird glowing games that people were playing in the dark. Like that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think the one that uh, we we talked by was the one where you put your arms through and then it produces music and visual uh, visuals on the TV screen in front of it. Yes, that was so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. That was that was really cool, and I think it was using a connect too to. Oh, I didn't realize that. To, okay. Uh, do all of it. The the actual metal structure didn't do anything. Didn't actually do anything. But yeah, no, it was like at first I was like, oh, this metal thing, and I was like, oh wait, he's using a connect. This is all video stuff. That's even cooler. <laughs> well, that was good showmanship on his part, because yeah, I thought he had built some like amazing custom controller thing uh but but yeah that was that was probably my favorite thing there that night there probably was something to do with the controller like if you put in a different controller maybe it wouldn't work but who knows either way yeah it was it was super cool uh the the other thing at the night games that really caught my attention i think was the uh the heartbeat chairs you put your hands on the little metal things and then you you rest, and there's there was a bass in the seat, and every time your heart would beat, the uh, the bass would go boof boof, and you could feel it like pump through your body, and sometimes you wouldn't feel your heartbeat, which is really weird. And yeah, that was cool. Did you try that out? Wow, I did not get to try that. That also sounds amazing. Yeah, it, it was really really weird, and like everybody kind of had a different experience with it, depending on how relaxed and like how in tune they got with it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, night games. That was that was sweet. So, what what are some of your other favorite uh, experiences with festivals? Because how many did you say you went to? At least half a dozen. Gosh, yeah. So it kind of depends on how you count. Because we also did like a ton of smaller things that are like in our local community mm-hmm. and like. Um, like, like actually, in terms of the number of people who came, the largest thing that we did was uh, Salt Lake Comic Con. Uh, Salt Lake Comic Con two years ago had like a hundred thousand attendees, um, which was by far the largest thing that we've showed our game at. Um, but on the other hand, we've done things here where there's like twenty attendees. So I don't know if those, if you know, I don't know exactly how those break down in, in counting, but. Um, uh, yeah, we probably, we did, like, probably half a dozen, um, kind of, like, big name conventions around the U.S., and then we did probably around 20 major events just in northern Utah, um, and then, like, uh, part of our development, like, sort of philosophy was that we wanted to get, like, this continual feedback from our players, on how the game was going. And we did as much as we could online with like, uh, like let's players on YouTube or reaching out to our Kickstarter backers, but there's some stuff that it's much easier to get in person. Mm -hmm. So during the height of our development, we had this thing where we would try to get out to at least one live playtesting event every single month. Um, so we like, we went to high schools and high schoolers played our game or we would go to like, like anime club meetings and the, those people would play our game or we'd go to like 
uh, every two months here, there's an indie game developer group, uh, Utah Indie Game Night, that uh, meets up. And so we demo our game there and have other developers play our game. Or a couple of times we set up in, like, my college cafeteria and we had people there <laughs> play our game. So um, it, was, it was a constant cycle of um, showing the game to people and having them play it. And that was good for us on at least two levels. One is that there's all sorts of assumptions you make about your game that turn out to be wrong. Like, you know, in terms of like the user interface or the level design, like we built levels that we thought were so much fun and then we'd play them and like nobody would get it. And we'd be like, okay, well, we're cutting this level because it turns out it's not fun unless you're like one of the 10 people on this team. Um, but also, like, just learning how to talk to people, like, while you're showing their game, your game off, like, that was very, very useful, especially, like, ahead of, like, when we got into the Indie Mega Booth at PAX East, if I hadn't already spent, like, two years talking to people about my game, like, I would have been much more intimidated, and I would have had much less idea of what to say to them. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, it, it, that was cool. Um, I'm trying to think what else was notable, like, um, aside from festivals, we kind (laughs) of, another lesson we learned along the way is kind of like how to deal with crunch. And the, (laughs) the, the conclusion we eventually came to is the best way to deal with crunch is just to not ever crunch. Um, so like early on, we would regularly have these, like, we called them like work parties where like. (laughs) We'd start, like, working on the game, like, with 12 people in the room at, like, 9 in the morning, and we'd go until, like, 4 in the morning. And, like, that was a lot of fun. Like, it was like a game jam, right? Like, uh-huh. so we're, we're talking about all sorts of different things, and we're listening to each other's music, and we're just, like, hammering stuff out. But, like, once we've been doing this for a while, like, you don't actually make nearly as much progress as it seems like you're making, because after like 12 solid hours of development, you're freaking exhausted and you're making really poor decisions and like you're working very slowly. And so we eventually got to the point where we're like, no, we're going to meet two times a week and we're going to work for a reasonable number of hours both times. And then that's it. Like the rest of the, the week, because we all had day jobs, right? Like yeah. we weren't doing this full time. So we're like, this is the amount of hours that we can give per week and we just can't give anymore. Um, so yeah, that was that was a learning experience. <laughs> what what did you guys end up deciding the reasonable about reasonable amount of numbers was, or did it change per session? So um, that's a really good question because I feel like it kind of depends on what you're doing. Um, like sometimes we would meet and it would be just the engineers just coding, you know, or it'd be just the artists, and like that's kind of um, in some ways that's an ideal scenario because. It's like you're just plugged in and you're just working and like, you know, you could you could easily do like a standard workday, like eight hours and be fine. Um, whereas if it's the whole team meeting, like we had kind of a larger team. So in itself, that's additional overhead. Like, you know, you got to work, worry about lunch and there's just a lot of like chatter going on. And like, even though that's more fun, it's also more exhausting. And so mm-hmm. I feel feel like six hours was probably where you're going to peak in terms of productivity. Um, But then sometimes we would meet and we wouldn't really do work per se at all. (laughs) Like we had a couple of meetings where the point of the meeting was for all of us to get together and play video games together so that we could be on the same page with each other in terms of, 
what you know like so we could have a shared vocabulary like when i am talking about this thing in games you know what i'm saying because these are the words that i use and this is and also just because like you know we like games and we should not completely stop playing them just because our lives are consumed by making them now mm-hmm. um and that you know we could you could that's a thing where you really can meet at nine in the morning and go till whatever time at night because it's so <laughs> low stress and yeah. it's like you're just there to have fun and then i think the worst is like as time went on it was necessary to have more and more meetings where we're like discussing things and making decisions you know like are we going to pax east like uh, if we're going, how are we going to make this happen with the tiny amount of money that we have? Or like, you know, our people online are asking for this feature. Are we going to do this feature? Like those discussions are like really, really mentally draining. And uh, we were not good at limiting them. Like I kind of feel like those discussions maximum should be two hours. And oftentimes with us, those were like six hours, and that was always a mistake. Because you'd get to the end of it, and you'd be like, oh, why do I even like doing this? <laughs> um, and then there's six hours. Maybe now. one other thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say one other thing I'll mention, maybe just because it's kind of funny mm-hmm. about our team, is we, we did develop like this whole like internal triple slash jargon where we would say all this weird stuff. Like, uh, it was because there's a couple of people on the team where they just had this funny way of talking where they'd, like, coin these new phrases. Um, so, like, <laughs> one of the... There was a set of parameters in the physics system that we just started calling it the oatmeal. Because at some point, someone felt like if you turn, you know, if you tuned the physics simulation just this way, then it felt like the robot was walking through oatmeal. So, like, we'd be, like, talking at... Um, uh, you know, you'd find yourself, like, in a public space and, like, uh, <laughs> someone would be having a hard time with the game and, you know, you'd turn to, like, one of your other developers and you'd be like, yeah, see, look at that. We, we need more oatmeal. Or, like, there's too much oatmeal. And people <laughs> would look at you and be like, what are you talking about? Or uh, we had a professor when we were in school, uh, Roger Altizer, who was drilling into us the importance of having, like, these notable moments where, like, game mechanics come together and there's in such a way that they're building up toward like an audio visual experience that just arrests you as a player. And you're like, that's amazing. And uh, we didn't have like a short name for, for that experience. So we just started calling them Rogers. So we'd be like, the game needs more Rogers, you know, (laughs) that I think that part of the team experience is one of my favorite things where it's kind of like you become your own weird little subculture. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say, is that just the the magic there makes you guys all the more connected, and it definitely makes it something to remember rather than just another game project. Right, right, exactly. No, that's super cool. I'm going to steal the Roger thing. Yeah, you should. So it would be, like, I've talked about this with some of the other people on the team. Like, I would be so happy if, like, in five years, like, you go to GDC and there's, like, some talk about, like, you know, how to maximize the Rogers in your game. And, like, nobody knows where this came from. <laughs> Fine-tuning your oatmeal, a game development. Right. Talk. <laughs> you, you guys should give that talk. You, you should make a talk just... every Every section of the talk has a different weird word slash thing that you guys that's a good idea 
we were actually talking about making like giving a talk where it's just like all of the incredibly stupid decisions that we made because we made a lot of incredibly stupid decisions <laughs> uh, i might try to put that together at some point uh, we were thinking of like like pitching a like 10 regrettable mistakes we actually made and why you shouldn't make them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think everybody makes really bad decisions a lot with game dev. It's just so easy to. Like, it is. Especially with characters. And, like, there's, you know, like, a lot of people have talked about this, but it's like, uh, it's kind of easy to fixate on the success stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, but there's so much to be learned from discussing failures. Like that's almost more exciting to me to say like, you know, well, here's my game and it was a terrible disaster. And here's why, like, because it's not only can you learn more, but that's also often funnier. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. No, you're definitely onto something. There is that entertainment value there. And then like you can learn those mistakes so you don't repeat them and you can right there's even there's even more to learn from what the mistakes are secretly saying underneath too like oh hey i put too many levels in my game can say yeah different things or i didn't put enough you know yeah i over-engineered this or i didn't you know i i didn't get this in front of people soon enough so i could get their feedback and that kind of goes back to when we were talking about festivals earlier because um uh, like a lot of people have been writing about this recently and I'm glad they have, uh, when we first started doing festivals, like we really had no idea how to do them. And it's kind of like every time we would do a festival, we'd watch what other more experienced developers were doing and like copy them next time or copy the parts of what they were doing that made sense for us. So like, um, like, we, I think, ran a really good booth when we were at PAX East. Like, we had these comfortable chairs, and we had these really nice big screens, and we had signs that were easy to set up. And, like, the whole booth, like, set up and take down took, like, max half an hour. It was really cheap to put together, and um, people really enjoyed it. It was an inviting space. But, like, we had to, like, screw up like seven times or, you know, like 27 times, depending on how you count before we got to that point where we, we could do that. And like, even where we're, you know, I feel like while we've learned a lot now, like you go and you look at somebody like Vlambeer and that they're like so far ahead of the curve. Like, you know, um, like every time I would go by their booth, I'm like, Oh, look at what they're doing. Why aren't we doing that? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I've never been to a Vlambeer booth. I've, I've seen pictures. What's it like? So, I mean, <laughs> they do... <laughs> I mean, they really, so well? they're just... I think it's kind of a couple of things. Like, um, they're really good at just doing all the best practices that people are always talking about in terms of, like, uh, inviting people in and, like, making it... Uh, maximizing everything about their game. I... I I can't like summarize it really quickly, but I will say a really good place to look for this kind of information is uh, indiegamegirl.com. Mm-hmm. She runs a blog that's like all about uh, promotion, and she has a lot to say about uh, how to do well at shows. Um, so that's a, a good source of information. But there's also like there's this level where uh, Rami Ismail is just amazing. Like he has. He's such a wide skill set, and he's so personable that, like, um, 
there's kind of a component to Vlambeer that I feel like is really just him, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like even other people doing these same things might not see that same level of success. Um, I know that when I was volunteering at um, the Indie Mega Booth at PAX Prime last year, I was uh, watching everything they were doing and uh, feverishly taking mental notes. Um, so, like, uh, for example, one thing that they did that I've seen a couple of other people do also, and I think it's a brilliant idea if your game is right for it, is uh, they would hold contests where there would be, like, one person playing. This was when they were showing off uh, Nuclear Throne. Mm-hmm. And so he would say, like, if this person is able to beat this level or, you know, reach some other kind of goal in Nuclear Throne, they'll get a free copy of the game, and every single person watching them play will get a free copy of the game. And so they would get these huge crowds because, like, people are like, well, I'm down, you know, like, I just have to stand here and I might get a free copy of the game. Um, uh, and so it's, it's like, that's very clever because it's simultaneously, like, he's building good feelings with the community and he's also, like, incentivizing people coming and watching his game so mm-hmm. that that will be something they remember and they talk about with their friends later on. Uh, so, yeah, like, th- those are the skills I'd like to develop. Yeah, yo man, check out this game that I got for free, and then they exactly right now that's a story to tell. Like, and there's so many cool games at a a place like PAX or Indiecade that I feel like your game has to be attached to a story. Like when you and I were were reminiscing about uh, the music game that used the Connect, like that's like a moment that we remember. Whereas, like I'm sure I've played, I probably played like two dozen awesome games at Indiecade that I don't remember anymore because there were, like, 300 awesome games there, you know? hmm Yeah, I can still see every booth, but, like, when I look inside the booth in my mind, it's like, what was on that computer? And I can only see one or two of the games. Right. Because those right. ones stuck out to you because they were good and they were presented awesomely. Right. Like, I probably played, like, I don't know, like, probably 12 different games in the Sony booth. But the only one I really strongly remember is Axiom Verge. And, like, that's because, like, they had a big display and lots of people were talking about it. Um, so, yeah, if you can manufacture, like, that sort of thing, then I think you're ahead of the game. Yeah, I, I kind of vaguely remember the Sony booth, but nothing really stood out other than Star Wall. Mm, I, I okay. They, I think they had a big booth, big, nice display with all their art on it. And there was also a huge crowd around it when I went there. But yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Like, I I was recently thinking about um, all this festival stuff, because I, I was kind of thinking about maybe uh, putting one of my games into IndieCade this year. Neat. And, like, it, I, it, it came up, and I was like, what what would I do to make my booth interesting? What what could I have? What How do you really get people to remember? Because it's all val- valuable stuff. And, yeah. (laughs) I I think, so here's two tips, which I'll I'll share with you and the rest of the universe, because I wish I had known these two years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, vertical banners. Don't do horizontal banners. They're so much trouble. Like, it doesn't seem like they would be, but they really are. You can buy these, like, vertical banner stands for, like, 200 bucks or less uh, and get, like, a vertical banner printed, and they're easier for people to see they're easier for you to take up and set down like it's it's such a better way to go than any other kind of signage that i've tried 
Unless, of course, you have a million dollars and you can build some giant thing out of, like, you know, <laughs> plexiglass and whatnot. But, yeah, vertical banners. And the other thing is, and this depends on the space, but if you can pull it off, chairs or better yet, a couch. Like, if you can have a couch in front of your game, like, that couch will be busy the whole time. Ooh, because everyone's exhausted. Everyone wants to sit down. And, like, a lot of, I mean, it doesn't work for every kind of game, but mm-hmm. a lot of games are just more fun if you're playing it in that kind of environment. So, um, yeah, those are two lessons that I would share. <laughs> yeah, we had two couches in their booth at Indiecade. Yeah. <laughs> and there were people sitting on it. There were people sitting on the arms while they were yeah. watching. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like, is, is, is there a service? Like, this, this is just kind of me going mm. off in, in thoughts. Uh, is, is there a service for festivals and stuff for renting, like, furniture? So I don't know of any that's, like, particular toward, like, indie game developers. There are definitely services that are aimed at, like, festivals of this kind. There's a number of really big ones um, that are sort of, like, national. Um, but their business model is based on kind of, like, like the customers they're expecting to have are people like GE or, you know... Um, Warner Brothers, where mm-hmm. they're going to build these elaborate setups and they have like thousands of dollars to drop. So, like, I would say avoid using those services if you can. Like, uh, we had to use them at one for one festival and like we rented a chair for like three days and it was like a picture, like the most uncomfortable, unpleasant, like cheapo plastic chair from like your elementary school. Like, that was this chair. And we borrowed it for three days, and it cost us, like, over $80. So, yeah, don't go with, like, nothing against those companies. Like, they do a professional job, but they're not, you're not their customer base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then there's also, like, local, um, there's, like, local companies that that also do the same type of service. Um, like, there's a lot of them in Boston, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of them in Seattle, but my impression is that probably any any place where there's a major show is going to have at least one of them. Um, and you can do things like, you know, you can rent flat screen monitors, you can rent nice looking tables and chairs. Um, and I know from reading blogs that some indies have had really good success uh, working with those people. Um, but I would still say if you can avoid it, it's probably better to avoid that um, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's it's a lot cheaper, but it's still going to be pricey. And the other is that, like, they don't have, like, infinite stock the way, like, the giant companies do. So you have to set things up well in advance. Um, so what worked better for us is figuring out ways that we could put together a nice booth um, in a small, with a small amount of materials that either we could ship very cheaply or we could just buy it when we got to the city and then, like, give away without... Um, without like stressing about it. Like we got these really, really cheapo. Well, I shouldn't even say cheapo, but inexpensive chairs that were still very comfortable. And like, maybe they're not going to last a year, but you know what? We only need them to last three three days. So we got some chairs like that for PAX East. And, uh, uh, then somebody just took them home with them. And like, they're in like somebody's den now on the team. Um, and I know that's another strategy that, that a lot of other indie teams have taken. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's probably more information than you 
we're asking. <laughs> no, no, that's that's kind of where I was going with it. Though, okay, cool. There, I know that there are like really expensive places for people that have a lot of money, but I was right. I was more curious like on the the small scale, the indie scale. <laughs> yeah, I actually think like if I was like less of like an avid game developer and more of like a savvy business person, like I would start a business servicing independent game developers because like there's there's a lot of us and we're none like we're all poor and yet we all are spending our money on this all the time (laughs) so oh you make money yeah but i spend it all on what i make money on (laughs) right (laughs) oops a little cycle there Yeah, sometimes people have asked us, like, well, is Magnetic profitable? And it's like, well, it depends on how you look at it. Like, we are getting revenue for sure, but we sunk two and a half years counting the first game, which was kind of like Magnetic's prototype. Mm -hmm. Like, we sunk a full two and a half years into this game for a team that at its maximum was 11 people. So, like, that's a lot of person hours, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Magnetic by nature is never going to make enough money that that is going to be a justifiable expense um, from a specifically financial viewpoint. Like, we had to be getting other things out of the experience. Like, otherwise, like, uh, you know, we're making less than minimum wage doing that. But I'm sure that's true for, like, most indies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can... Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of developers that... Like like we were talking about earlier in the the articles that have side jobs to make sure that they right. play games. Yeah, and then it does seem like you know even when you do everything right, like even if you have all of the skills, like and all of the contacts, um, there's still like a degree of luck, you know. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, I just like uh, some of my friends who worked on Magnetic by Nature. I, I mentioned briefly they're working now on a game. Uh, called 404 site which like has gotten i think last i checked it's almost a hundred thousand downloads in their first week of being available on steam and like like that's awesome but like i was talking to them like a, a couple of mornings ago and they're like yeah we don't really know why this is happening i mean they've been doing a really good job of like building um of you know trying to build uh what's the word uh, just getting you know word about their game out like uh, marketing on in all the usual channels but like you know just about everybody does that so why is it that some games it tips and you know the press is like yes i'm really gonna write about this and the you know gamers are like yes i'm really gonna download this and tell all my friends and then there's other games that have also you know done their homework and it's a really fun game and then that just doesn't happen um and from what I hear, I think that's kind of just, like, entertainment in general. Like, there, there's a certain degree to which it, it's just intrinsically risky. Um, Was that the end of your thoughts? Yeah, sorry. Nope. <laughs> it's all good. I sort of trailed off there. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's fine. Mm, yeah, no, with, with press, it's really hitting us. Like... With with luck, there's so much to it. Do you have a good game idea? Are you going to be able to get it to the right people? Are those people going to share it with their friends? Right. Yeah, it's it's stressful, but if you hit it, it's awesome. Yes, and I also kind of like personally feel like, um, you know, part of it is finding what works for you. 
like I think of like uh, like Jeff Vogel who runs uh, uh, Spiderweb Software and does that bottom feeder blog. Mm-hmm. Like he's been an indie developer since like the early '90s, and like in all of that time, like he's never had his like you know um, super meat boy moment. He's never been like the Minecraft of the year. But, like, he's still in business. Like, he's still been, like, being successful for, you know, more than 20 years now. And I think it's, it's um, for people that really, really want to be in this space, it's sort of like you have to figure out, well, what's going to work for you and then do that thing rather than just emulating what has worked for other people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so true. So, before you teamed up with Team Triple Slash, had you developed any other games on your own that you released either freeware or possibly commercial? Not really. I, I certainly hadn't done anything commercially. Um, I did, when I was a, a teenager, I did a bunch of, um, like, sort of little games in, like, uh, either that I programmed myself, like, in C, or, uh, like, I did a lot of stuff on ZZT, uh, that old DOS um game development system uh and those i kind of like circulated amongst my friends in my hometown um but like uh i didn't really have internet access back then so they didn't really go up onto a wider community i probably would have been too scared to do that anyway um (laughs) and then i had more recently than that i had like worked on other projects um like i i worked with a uh, another team for uh not exactly sure how long it was, maybe six months or so on like a game engine that we were sort of doing primarily just to educate ourselves uh, from like a programming perspective. Um, And that never saw the light of day. So I did other things and and they never saw the light of day. (laughs) And I would make from time to time, I would make things just for myself. Um, But honestly, when I was younger, I was more interested in just the programming aspect than necessarily the game aspect so, like, a lot of, like, the hobby coding that I did was, like, not games, you know? Like, I would be like, oh, I'll see if I can do this algorithm, or I'm going to implement Conway's Game of Life today, or something like that. <laughs> um, and it was really only kind of... I mean, actually, for me, it was kind of after... So before, like, even though I said, like, we got to go to all of these events because of our relationship with Uya, and that is largely true... The first event that we went to, we went to totally on our own, and that was uh, GDC in 2013. And for me, that was like this watershed moment in my life where like, I went to GDC and I was like, it was the first time in my experience that I was talking to other programmers and I felt like I clicked with them. Because like I'm a super nerdy person, but I'm not the stereotypical nerd in a lot of ways. And like going to GDC, I would like find myself in a group of programmers and like a bunch of them had orange hair and a bunch of them had like facial piercings and tattoos and a bunch of them had like weird zany life experiences and I was like this is so different from when I was working at like that government research facility and like everyone was wearing a suit you know (laughs) um so uh, and then also just like kind of that was like my jumping into the deep end introduction to like um the indie game scene beyond sort of the super meat boy stuff like just talking to people at the IGF pavilion and like seeing the, the art games that they were doing. Like, 
that was this moment where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a game developer. Um, so even though I'd been a very avid game player since like, you know, I was a little kid, uh, this was the first time where I stopped thinking of games as like, um, like making a game. It used to be that that was an excuse to do interesting programming. And for me now, programming is just a tool for making a game. And that shift totally happened for me in 2013 at GDC. That is so cool. Oh, cool. I'm glad you think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> the, the way that you just described that, like, you, gaming used to be an excuse for interesting programming, but now programming is a way is a to tool make for making games. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, the, there's definitely been a shift in my head because I used to be like, well, I don't want to use middleware. Like, I want to, like, code this from the ground up. And now I'm like, the more that the the engine can do for me, the happier I am because I want to get to the game sooner because that's the important part. And like, that's totally different from me as a teenager where I was like, you know, I'm, even though I use ZZT a lot and I really like ZZT, like mostly I just, I really wanted to know, well, how does the graphics card work? You know? (laughs) And now I'm sort of like, I don't really care. (laughs) Oh my God. I remember when I was 13, I was like, like, when I was getting into games and starting starting to play around with Game Maker and all that stuff, like, I kept thinking, I was like, oh, man, it would be so cool to build your own computer. But not just right. build it, but, like, build all the parts and, like, understand how every little thing works and, like, construct the, the boards yourself. And now I look back at it and I was like, was I crazy? It's <laughs> <That is> so <laughs> much work. Well, and, I mean, I guess, like, I feel like... Like, that really is genuinely cool. Like, I, you know, um, my very first computer was actually a Commodore VIC-20, which was, like, the underpowered, dirt-cheap sibling of the Commodore 64. Yeah. And, like, uh, that was, like, I mean, this was in the 90s, so, like, the Commodore was already over, but uh, my parents were, like, cheap. (laughs) And they were like, we don't need to buy a Macintosh or a PC. Like, we've got this old Commodore. And um, so that was kind of my introduction to computing. And um, it was extremely limited. Like, even by, like, there's lots of things you can do on a Commodore 64 that you cannot do on the VIC-20. But on the other hand, like, the manual that came with the computer had this, like, fold-out map, kind of like those old RPG maps that you get in, like, Nintendo (laughs) games. Only instead, it's a map of every single circuit in the computer. And the computer was, relatively speaking, so simple that, like, me as a 13-year-old, I could look at it and understand what every part is doing, at least on a basic level. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Like, And so I admire people who are, like, you know, like, they run BSD or they run Arch Linux or something, and they're like, yes, I know every subsystem in my machine. Like, I, I think that that is, that that's not crazy. Like, that's a worthwhile activity in itself. But I guess it's not the activity that interests me now. Like, um, I I don't know. I I feel like video games allow you to connect with people in a way that like memorizing circuit schematics at least never allowed me to connect (laughs) with other people. (laughs) Yeah. Like if, if I had unlimited time, I would definitely look into it, but you could be spending your time on stuff like making games and creating cool experiences. Yeah, exactly. I feel you there. So, um, a couple weeks ago, 
you tweeted about Unity and how you're working with Spine. How did that go? Oh, right. So um, I actually have worked with Spine and Unity before, but only in game jams. So right now I'm working on this game. I've sort of been talking around because I, I, haven't, I don't really have anything to show yet So because I've just been too busy. So uh, that was this is my first time using Spine where I'm like making something that's more of like a long-term project. And like uh, the short version is it went well. Um, I really like there's stuff about Spine I still need to learn. Um, but overall, I really like it. Like it's a it's a very solid product, and they're very the the developers are very responsive, like in their forums and uh, on places like Stack Exchange in terms of like answering people's questions. Um, and just like uh, it just. It's just kind of that nice experience where basically you just plug it in and it works. And it's like, I want everything to be that way. <laughs> um, yeah, what's been more trickier to me that anyone who's been following my tweet is pr- my uh, Twitter feed has probably seen me belly aching about is uh, I'm like learning about like AI for the first time. And uh, it's hard, it turns out. <laughs> I, um, I think it's mainly hard because it, you have to think about it like differently than you would normally think about anything else. So until you <laughs> like hit that clicking point, which I still haven't, um, I feel that it's just an an uphill struggle, pretty much. Yeah, I agree with you, and I also think there's kind of like an additional problem, which is that there's a lot of tutorial-ish information for like game AI out there, uh-huh. but it is almost exclusively discussing combat. So if you're doing anything that isn't like, you know, this agent is following that agent so that it can, you know, shoot him, slash gobble him, slash jump on him, like, uh, it's, it's, like, people, like, in articles will often, like, sort of, like, mention, like, The Sims, or they'll mention Dwarf Fortress, or, like, other games that are doing AI, doing different things with AI, but they don't talk about how it works. So it's kind of like, you have to, like, look at, you know... Well, how how does this game use AI to achieve this feature set, which is totally dissimilar from the feature set that I actually want to build, mm-hmm. and then kind of like generalize it? And uh, um, yeah, I, I think there's also um, I haven't reached that clicking point yet either. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if there is a clicking point. I I just assume that there is. Uh, Kyle Pulver put out an article a while back about. AI and the way that he approached it like he it was it was definitely more of a broad thing and he was talking about how he structures his AI as he's learning about it and it's totally different than how I would have ever gone about it and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try looking it up quick see if I can find it because it's it's a good cool yeah I'd appreciate that um uh, oh I searched AI and now any article with the letters AI in it (laughs) showing up. Right, right. <laughs> every single article on his site, basically. Um, I guess I'll, I'll look it up on Google instead. Kyle Pulver AI tutorial. Alright, I can't find it, so I'll find it uh, afterwards um, and put it put it on their radio page and send it to you as well. Sweet. But yeah, no, it was, it was really good. It was just like, it might not have been Kyle Pulver, actually. It might have been something that Google now recommended to me on Reddit. Oh, the search for stuff on the internet when you really want it. <laughs> Where was it? Uh, 
But regardless, it was just, like, a step back and, like, thinking about the systems and the data structures behind the systems and, like, it's just a very generalized kind of, almost too broad, uh, uh, tutorial. Right. But regardless, I really liked it, and I'm sure somebody could, somebody could do it. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, for me, at least, what, what it's really going to come down to is, like, I just have to get my, like, my hands in there and get dirty. Like, I mean, that's really any time I'm learning a new kind of coding, like, I, I am sort of a methodical person where I want to read all the theory and all the documentation first, but still, like, I really have to just use it before I get it. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um... Maybe, <laughs> I sort of hate to say this, but maybe I'd gotten a little bit cocky. Like, I'd sort of been used to being like, well, you know, I'll, I'll take an afternoon and I'll figure this out. And this has been the first subject in a while where it's like, okay, I'll take a month and I'll figure this out. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't click right away. And you know that there's going to be multiple revisions of the way that right. you structure things and think about things as you continue going on. Oh, there's a problem here, so next time I design the system, don't right. design it this way. Yeah, I feel that that happens to to me when I find new technologies as well. I've been I've been experimenting with WebSockets and uh, oh. stuff with web development, and that is completely different than uh, working with. I guess you could kind of say a counterpart, Ajax, which is you know you send stuff to the server and it sends you back. This is two way. The server can send you stuff, so you don't need to do certain things. Huh. So there's a lot of work that's taken out, but there's also a lot of work put in to make sure that it registers it all because it all gets sent to the same place instead of different files oh wow and it's just like oh you have to like process it all through a manager and like send it out then to different files and yeah it's it, it's cool but yeah it's completely different in thinking so so let me ask you a question have you done much uh development in unity uh unity i've done uh I'd say I'm like an intermediate, <laughs> an early okay. intermediate. Uh, uh, I yeah, really I mean, that's about where I put myself. But, uh, I released the game, but that's that's about it. I've played with it so many times, and I've done a lot of cool stuff with voxels from a tutorial that I found, but yeah, I'm meh. I'm okay at Unity. I, I ask in part because um, I really, really like the uh, entity component architecture i guess oh, you'd say yes. like the, that way of approaching game design like i we were doing that back uh when we were doing stuff in xna but like we had to like write all our own entity component stuff because xna didn't have that built in mm-hmm. and uh um but I, I i know from speaking to other people that that's something where other developers have had a similar experience where like the it's taken them quite a while to sort of get that concept of how like you know like every game object is an entity and but all of the functionality of that entity is in the components that are attached to it like mm-hmm. that that seems to take a lot of people a while to get used to yeah there was there's a write-up that i saw a while back about um i think it was a game about the hulk like the incredible <laughs> hulk game from like 2006 or something and they were talking about like how they they compone or like modularized everything and put in components and I was like what? <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> that sounds so confusing Right Now, how, how would you even set that up? You'd have to completely rewrite the entity update loop to take into account these components and what if they work out of order 
and how do they interact? They don't know about each other. It's like, that doesn't make sense. But yeah, with Unity, it, it all clicks, because that's, that's the way to use Unity. I feel like Unity is maybe the, the perfect introduction to entity component systems, because, like, A, like you said, that's the way to use Unity. Like, it's all, it's built to do that and only that. And then also because it's like Unity makes it all very visible, you know, like when we were doing entity component in XNA, it was all very abstract. And like, you know, there were some of the coders like, why are we doing this? This seems like extra steps. But like with Unity, like, you know, you click on a game object and you see its components and the relationship between them is immediately apparent. So I think that that helps. I noticed uh, in the chat, Corrigan asked, uh, could uh, we elaborate on entity components? So, like, I guess um, my my definition, i.e., I'm probably going to get this wrong from an <laughs> academic perspective, but uh, so there's sort of some classical problems that arise when you have, like, a complex software system like a game and you're doing it in strict object-oriented uh, fashion where, like, like, a good example is, like, um, so, okay, I, I'm, I'm designing my game, and I'm designing classes, and this class represents um, weapons, and this class represents vehicles. Uh, and so, you know, I subclass to get different kinds of weapons and different kinds of vehicles, and this works great when I'm making skateboards and rocket ships and, you know, uh, slingshots and hand grenades, but what do I do when I make a tank? Because now it's both a weapon and a vehicle. Um, and uh, so uh, the sort of the natural solution is to say, well, okay, I'm going to make a vehicle and then I'm going to attach a weapon to it. Um, but this solution gets really messy really fast, especially where the player is concerned, because the player is usually a bundle of special cases. And so, like, ideally the player should inherit from, like, lots of different classes, but that doesn't work very well. So um, even in languages that support it, that doesn't work very well. So entity component is like a way to um, solve this problem by flattening the inheritance tree where um, every object in the game is basically like a name. And then what that object does is based on like this bag of functionality that you just drop things into. And the things that you're dropping in are called components. So now if I'm making a tank if the tank acts like a vehicle, then I add the components that implement the vehicleness of the tank. So maybe there's, there's like an engine and there's wheels and there's a space for somebody to sit. And then I add the components that implement the weapon functionality of the tank in exactly the same way. Like you just drop them in this bag. And it, um, once you wrap your head around it, it's just a much, much simpler way to uh, architect the various... Um, things for lack of a better word mm -hmm. in your game yeah um, that was that was a very thorough uh, definition um oh, i'm cool. gonna i'm gonna give a slightly different outlook on it though um, oh cool just just to you know give us a, a second take yeah um so let's say that you have um both players and enemies and they they have the same physics so to say so what you can do is you can have three components here and um you plug two into each of them okay so um the first component is going to be plugged into both of them, and it would be called movement or something like that. And um, you would plug variables into there, so then they both move off of those physics. They share the same physics, 
and then you'd have a different component. So the player would have like um, input controller, and what that component would do was would be it would look at the input that the the player is putting into the game, and turn those into values for the other component uh, component the movement script to use to move the player according to those physics. And then the en enemy could have instead of the input script, it would have an AI that would register stuff and then produce the variables that the movement script needs based off of what the enemy's AI script wants to put out. So it is about making things modular and uh, being able to reuse stuff and not be dependent upon other things that other classes need. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. That was a perfect way of describing it. <clears throat> but yeah, programming... Is so much fun. <laughs> I love, I love until it. it's not. <laughs> yeah, until you run into a problem, and you're like, why? <laughs> Everything is wrong. <clears throat> yeah, no problem, uh, Corrigan Stone. Uh, Corrigan said thanks in the chat for those who can't see the chat. Uh, but yeah, no, that that's fun. All right, so we we just hit the ninety minute mark, so I think we're gonna wrap up uh, pretty quick here. Um, if Corrigan has a question, or if anybody else has a question, jump in the IRC, tweet us, do something, get get that question out. Um, or otherwise, um, I'm just going to ask Paige about future plans. What's what's next? Cool. Well, um, so there's a couple of things that I have like on the boil right now. Like I mentioned, we, we do really want to get Magnetic by Nature onto the major consoles, and we've hit a couple of snags, basically just funding. Um, uh, so we're working on that. Um, uh, other things I'm right now working on a personal project that I had really, really wanted to have done in time to submit to indicate. And that is probably not going to happen now. Um, but that project will definitely be materializing in the near future. And it's, uh, just to give you like the quick pitch version, like I want to make a sort of story simulator where it's, uh, like my vision is kind of like imagine like a game that's sort of like a YouTube channel and like it'll show you these like little uh, you know maybe three minute like little videos of stuff happening but like you set up the parameters that determine what sort of story is going to get generated and so the way I'm doing that right now is by borrowing the setting and aesthetics of like old uh really old, like, RPGs like Ultima or Dragon Quest. Um, so I, I want you to, like, customize your little world, and then you'll get a region in your little world, and some characters will show up and do something, and hopefully it will be funny. Um, <clears throat> this is just a project I wanted to do for a really long time. So I'm working with some other local developers in my scene uh, here in Salt Lake City. Uh, I've just been self-financing this, and I don't expect to make any money on it uh, because I don't think, I think most people will think it is boring, but <laughs> I think it's cool. It's, so, it's like uh, procedurally and, generated stories, basically. Yes, yeah. Like, I haven't, I haven't worked out a really good elevator pitch for it yet, but, um, yeah, it's kind of like, imagine, like, Dragon Warrior 1 if there was... <laughs> maybe the best way I could say it is, imagine Dragon Warrior 1 if you didn't play, instead you just, like, entered some procedures it, or some some seeds and it generated a, a world for you and a bunch of little characters interacted 
except also imagine that it stars Shovel Knight, but Shovel Knight is gay and he has crushes on all the other knights all the time. Like, that's what I'm going for. <laughs> hmm. We'll see what I get. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm and then maybe... I'm also working on, uh, kind of on the back burner, on a couple of other games. Um, one of them I'm working with uh, some other people from my local uh, game development community uh, on a sort of top-down vertical shooter game. And I can't say too much about it because it's sort of quasi under NDA. And I don't know for sure that it's actually going to become a thing yet, but we're working on it. Hopefully, um, hopefully it will happen. And then, uh, yeah, I have more nebulous plans in the future, but those are my two big things right now. Um, is there anything you had wanted to ask me about that? I feel like I talked I, over you. No, um, I, I was just going to say something like you could maybe incorporate some sort of domino effect metaphor um, mm. in the in the thing like it's it's like setting up dominoes and you push them over and you see what happens <sighs> yeah yeah I totally see what you're saying like kind of the origin of this idea for me is like I, I mentioned earlier Conway's game of life which is this classical like mathematical system uh, a cellular automata where, like, a cell is either alive or dead based on these three very simple rules. But all sorts of amazing things can happen in Conway's Game of Life based on that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, but it's kind of like it's the hard thing for most people to get into because it's so abstract and, like, it's basically you're looking at graph paper, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do something that has the feel of Conway's Game of Life but that is more accessible. Um, so that, that was the... That was the root of my idea, and kind of the team and I just have the feeling, well, we're going to do this, and it'll be this weird, zany project, and if people like it, then we'll keep going, and if people don't like it, then that's fine. I'll just put mm -hmm. it on my website, and we'll move on to something else. Yeah. Send me send me a link, or download, zip, whatever, when you have something working. I'd really like to check it out. Awesome. I will totally do that. <laughs> All right, and then uh, Corrigan Stone had one last question, and then we're going we're gonna to get to the credits. Could you define a Roger again? How does it... Uh, does it seem like the goal generally with games is to maximize the Rogers? Okay, good question. Um, the best way I can define a Roger is to show you some examples. And so I'll try to do that on Twitter after uh, we're over. But to define it uh, verbally, what uh, the idea is that... Um, some games, because I would actually say this is not the goal of most games, and like maybe even most games don't even have these moments, but uh, games that are really memorable um, a lot of times tend to be memorable because they have these moments where the action that you're experiencing, and I'm using action loosely here, but whatever the interactivity that you're experiencing as the player leads up to some moment where there's, like, the game designer has, like, thought through like how like what's going to be going on in the music and what's going to be going on visually and like all of this stuff comes together and it's the kind of moment where you just kind of like sit back for a second maybe you put down the control and you're like wow um like uh the trailer for hyper light drifter is full of stuff like this um a lot of old uh sega genesis and super nintendo games i think capitalized on this sort of thing because they were competing so heavily with arcade games 
um, and they couldn't deliver the same raw graphics power. So yeah, it's yeah exactly. Corrigan says like a ultimate uh, a moment of ultimate cohesion and salience, and it's like yeah, it's it's a moment where like like um, God, what's a, what's a good example? Like you know maybe like you've been fighting your way up the hill, and okay, actually a great example um, is the opera sequence in Final Fantasy VI. Uh, like yep. it's this long like puzzle sequence, and it culminates in this boss battle. And there's all this stuff that you've been doing, and at the end of it, like, you take off in the airship for the first time, and you're going to the southern continent, which you haven't seen yet, and you see the bad guy's city, like, rising up over the uh, ocean with all of these searchlights. And it's just, like, that's a real moment that you remember after the game is over. Okay, I was... See, it's... It's actually kind of interesting because I thought I got it, but now that you redescribed it, it's a bit different. I was thinking that it was like more of a mechanical thing where, like, let's let's take uh, like braid for example, like that the one puzzle that like combines all the elements together and it finally clicks in your head and you're like, <gasps> I, I think actually that's equally valid. Yeah, like the example that I used was maybe more scripted, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, totally. Like I, just anything like that where it's like. Yeah, it's it's a moment where sort of the experience of playing the game, like it hits this like um, threshold in your mind or something where it's like, well, this is why we started calling them Rogers because it was like hard to talk about them. <laughs> but yeah, something that's really memorable and that's really memorable in a way that like only a game could be memorable. So maybe like your example is actually better in that sense because it, it is mechanic, mechanically driven, but I personally feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be mechanically driven. It just has to be like like a culminating event where like stuff comes together. Fantastic, Rogers! It is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think we're gonna wrap up. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. It was really awesome. Mm-hmm. And if you uh, if you want to stay around for a couple minutes uh, after the show, uh, feel free to. Cool. Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you for listening in to broadcast number 60 of Indie Radio. This broadcast was broadcasted live on 1000 Mics and was recorded using Adosti. Our next show will be on a- bleh, not April, May 9th, 2015 with Landon Podbolesky. Thank you again for listening and have a fantastic weekend. <laughs>